Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing better than feeling comfortable in your own shoes. And that doesn't mean flopping down on the couch with bunny slippers. Maybe you're a parent raising a little rock star. Or a tech nomad working from anywhere and jumping from one thing to the next. Whoever you are, Allbirds wants you to be comfortable in your actual shoes, too. Their wool runners, pipers, and loungers are designed for a level of coziness that makes you feel like you can do anything. You might even forget you're wearing them. And their shoes are so stylish, they go perfectly with a wear-whatever-I-want attitude. Allbirds is all about loving Mother Nature, too. Because no one wants to leave a bad footprint. Each shoe is carefully crafted from natural materials that tread lightly on our planet. From ZQ-certified merino wool to a bouncy midsole made from sweet foam, the world's first carbon-negative EVA material made from sugarcane. So get comfortable in your shoes. Get to know the wool runners, pipers, and loungers at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. In the early hours of one autumnal morning of 1688, in the quaint market town of Cambridge, England, all about is quiet, save for a small corner tucked away beside the east gate of Trinity College. A grand sprawl of towers and cloisters, home to some of the finest academic minds of the age. In the dark of a walled garden, a gentle orange light emanates from a small private laboratory. Inside, A man with long silver hair and patrician face sits deep in concentration, illuminated by the flickering light of candles and the roaring flames of a large brick furnace. Around him, glass vessels, distillers and crucibles are perched precariously, and all about the sound of things bubbling and boiling, while the air thickens with strange scented fumes. The man skittish and sleep-deprived, having barely left the room in weeks, reaches for a large leather-bound manuscript. Its cover bears the title Introitus Apertus Ad Occlusum Regis Palatium, or An Open Entrance to the Shut Palace of the King. 
the man turns a page and begins to read. This chaos is called arsenic, our air, our lunar, but in diverse respect, because our matter undergoes various states before our regal diadem is extracted. So learn who the comrades of Cadmus are, and who the serpent who ate them. Learn what the doves of Diana are, which conquer the green lion, the Babylonian dragon, killing all by his means. The words are a code, a spell of sorts, or to the initiated, a recipe for the hallowed philosophic mercury, the fundamental constituent of the mythical philosopher's stone that is said to turn base metals into gold and grant immortality. Our alchemist, no mere tourist on these shores, is all too aware that this chaos is but another term for the chemical element, antimony, that Cadmus's comrades refers not only to the soldiers of Cadmus, the founder of Thebes, who were eaten by a serpent, but also to the metallic element, iron, and that serpent who ate them is the sulphide ore, stibnite. The alchemist, this natural philosopher, adds the resulting antimony to a flask of mercury and watches as the liquid metals fuse, while cinders crackle and spit from the fire, adding finally the last ingredient, two doves of Diana, the goddess of the moon, also known as silver. Next will come distillation, after which he will attempt to extract the purest of philosophical mercury. It is said that by combining this most refined of elements with gold, will reduce the precious metal to its constituent parts, thereby revealing the base from which all metals are made, and with it the key to turning any metal into gold. Such a rare act of change would have been fitting for the age. The past 40 years in England had seen revolution take the head of the monarchy, King Charles I, and with it the insidious fallacy of the divine right of kings, only for it to be restored a decade later upon the shoulders of his son, Charles II. By the time of Charles's death in 1685, and the transference of the crown into the hands of James II, it seemed that the spirit of the revolution had all but been dissolved. But such rebellious seeds seldom wither so easily. Three years later, James's wife Mary gives birth to a son, and with him the promise of a new Catholic dynasty. But elsewhere, men of Orange are conspiring. In November, led by their leader William, they will cross the vicious chill of the North Sea waves, landing at the port of Brixham. Within a year, King James II's reign will be at an end, replaced by the Protestant King William and Mary, James's Protestant daughter. Their union marking the final end for Catholicism as a substantial influence in English society. More than that, however, it marked the beginning of the end for the church and the monarchy as significant political powers. To secure his ascent to the throne, William was given support in return for his agreeing to the Bill of Rights. Signed in 1689, the Bill declares an end to royal prerogative powers. No longer could an English monarch suspend laws, levy taxes or raise an army without consent of Parliament. It was a turning from the light of the Lord to the light of the people. The age of reason had begun. 
Over the next 300 years, the revolutionary spirit of enlightenment will come to dominate the world of ideas, an unparalleled time of extraordinary discovery, invention and social upheaval. With one man's ideas, perhaps more than any other, providing the touch paper for this explosion of knowledge. Although he himself would say that if he had seen further than most, it was only because he had stood on the shoulders of giants. And so we return to that man, our alchemical Magus, toiling away in his candlelit laboratory, practicing magic. His name, of course, is Isaac Newton. Just a year previously, Newton's mathematical principles of natural philosophy had completely revolutionised science, gifting to the world his three laws of motion, to which he would later add modern calculus and the colour spectrum of light, amongst many other discoveries. He was quite simply a genius, a shining beacon of rationality. And yet, so too did he give genuine consideration to the impossible dream of the philosopher's stone. But what drove Newton in those magical endeavours was not so much a blind folly, but rather his belief in an omnipresent God, a hidden truth behind all things. He wasn't looking for gold, so to speak, but rather for the hidden world that he believed was located in the spaces between its constituent parts. Newton kept his occult studies secret during his lifetime for fear of being accused of heresy. After his death, his heir John Conduit was so horrified to find amongst his manuscripts, notes and letters, over one million words pertaining to his studies of alchemy and biblical prophecy, he made it his legacy to suppress them. It wouldn't be until the 1930s, after economist John Maynard Keynes bought a set of Newton's previously unpublished notes, that the true extent of his fascination with alchemy became public knowledge. Keynes's extraordinary find prompted him to remark that perhaps Newton wasn't in fact the first of the Age of Reason, but rather the last of the magicians, the Babylonians and the Sumerians, the last great mind which looked out on the visible and intellectual world with the same eyes as those who began to build our intellectual inheritance rather less than 10,000 years ago. Had Newton lived in more recent times, we can only wonder what evidence of the divine he might have discerned deep within the realm of quantum mechanics or woven into the fabric of space-time. Either way, it is highly likely he would have been at the forefront of such groundbreaking investigations. As for whether he would have retained an interest in the occult sciences is anyone's guess. One thing's for sure, though, he wouldn't have been alone if he did. For it turns out that Isaac Newton was not the last of the magicians at all. Not by a long shot. This is Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. There were many heads turned that summer morning in 1926 when the limousine pulled up to the front lawn of Pasadena's George Washington Junior High. While some kids ignored the peculiar sight, others huddled together, growing even more intrigued when a 12-year-old child stepped out of the vehicle. With dark, slicked-back hair, 
the baby-faced boy seemed strangely grown up in his grey blazer and sparkling brown leather shoes. A single Stars and Stripes flag placed at the back of the wide lawn flapped high above as the boy watched his grandfather's car drive away. Turning back to the school, which loomed up a good three flights of steps in the distance, Jack sensed it would be a long walk to the front entrance as more children stopped to gawp. Taking a deep breath, he hoisted his satchel onto his back and with his three copies of Amazing Stories magazine sticking prominently out the top, he made his way up to the school. Hugo Gernsback's recently launched magazine featuring tales from Jules Verne and H.G. Wells was a favourite of Jack's, a place to get lost and stir his dreams. But as he made his way to class that morning, they seemed just another reason for the other kids to make fun of him and his bizarre affected English accent. Months later, 14-year-old Ed Foreman, newly appointed recess monitor, was about getting ready to summon the kids back in for class when a scuffle broke out at the back of the playground. Amidst the chaos and cries of sissy, Ed could just about make out someone being kicked on the floor by another, much bigger pupil. Ever the egalitarian, Ed rushed into the melee, punching the assailant away. Jack looked up from the ground to find a hand being thrust out towards him, picking him up from the dirt. From then on, the pair were inseparable, almost preternaturally drawn together. Evenings and weekends would be spent at each other's homes, or more precisely, at Jack's grandparents' vast mansion on Orange Grove Avenue. Though both boys lived in Pasadena, they occupied very different worlds, as Ed would soon come to realise. Jack was born Marvel Parsons in October 1914, named after his father, who had met Jack's mother Ruth in Chicago a few years previously. The couple had decided to move to Pasadena, California, located just 10 miles northeast of Los Angeles, after the devastation of losing their first child, who had been stillborn. The city had become somewhat of a retreat for East Coast waspish liberals and industrialists seeking a haven in the sun, away from the complications of the big cities. For Ruth, however, it was not quite the tree-lined paradise it had first appeared. Within weeks of Jack's birth, she made the crushing discovery that her husband had been paying other women for sex. Ruth wasted little time throwing him out, and by the following year, they were divorced. If Jack could remember seeing his father the day he left, it would be the last time he would do so for over 20 years. In a final effort to expunge all memory of her ex-husband, Ruth removed all mention of the name Marvel on her son's official records. He would henceforth be known as Jack. The vast Italian-style villa that Jack and Ed were sitting in now as they flicked through Jack's extensive magazine collection, had been bought by Ruth's father, Walter, who, along with her mother, Carrie, had travelled out to California to support their daughter. The boys had been quick to bond after that first meeting, with Ed, drawn to Jack's encyclopedic knowledge and worldly air, listening rapt as he recited poetry from heart. Jack was, in turn, enamoured of the streetwise and confident Ed, and loved nothing more than to share his favourite stories with him. But what they loved more than anything was rockets. 
It was Jack's dream to fly a rocket to the moon. But for now, at least, they would have to settle for letting off explosives in the villa's gardens. Being the adventurous, inquisitive minds that they were, however, it wasn't long before they were adapting the standard firecrackers into something with a bit more bang. With the help of Jack's family's money and Ed's father's electrical engineering tools, the pair soon started constructing rockets from balsa wood, taking the explosives from multiple fireworks and packing it into their own novel creations. As the rockets increased in size, the pair were forced to relocate their testing site to the arid slopes of the nearby Arroyo Seco, a seasonal river canyon and thicketed wilderness of dust and sagebrush that ran alongside Pasadena's western edge. Walking to find a good launching spot one morning, Ed tells Jack about the time he had first moved to Pasadena with his family. Too poor to rent a hotel while they searched for a house, they had been forced to camp in the canyon until his father had found a job. As the friends pick their way through the scrub, they catch sight of the Devil's Gate Dam in the distance. As they draw closer, a peculiar formation in the cliffside becomes visible. It looks like a horned face. It's the Devil, says Ed. That's where the dam gets its name. That's not the Devil, replies Jack. Ed looks to his friend, confused. How do you know? he asks. Because I've seen him. One evening alone in his bedroom a few months ago, as Jack went on to explain, he was trying out a magic ritual that he'd found in the back of one of his books when something unspeakable had materialised. The incident had sent him sprawling to the back of the room, shivering with terror until the monstrous figure had departed. Ed can only look on speechless as his friend walks on ahead. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. As Jack and Ed's rockets grew larger, so did the explosive force required to propel them ever higher into the sky. But Jack's obsession was beginning to concern his mother. Worried that her estrangement from his father had left him lacking discipline, and eager that he should become more sociable like other teenagers his age, she enrolled him in a military school 130 miles away. Jack, who was becoming an increasingly adept chemist by the day, reacted by blowing up the toilets and getting himself expelled. He was promptly returned to Pasadena and reunited with Ed. At some point, 
flicking through Wonder Stories magazine, the pair discover an advert for the American Interplanetary Society, a small collection of rocket enthusiasts who in 1930 represented the vanguard of US rocket science. Both joined immediately and were soon receiving regular bulletins from the organisation about all the latest tests and progress being made around the world. The pair were also introduced to the Verein für Raumschiffart, the German equivalent of the AIS. Now insatiable for all and any knowledge to better improve their devices, Jack found the contact details for a member of the VFR, his name, Werner von Braun. Over the next year, a 15-year-old Parsons and the 17-year-olds, Ed Foreman and Werner von Braun, frequently spoke on the phone, trading what they knew until it became apparent to Jack and Ed that von Braun was merely pumping them for information. In early 1929, Jack's grandfather, Walter, decided to move the family to an even more grand mansion on the western side of the Arroyo Seco, not far from the majestic Colorado Bridge that spanned the canyon and divided those on the hill from those down in the city. But everything was about to change. In October, a financial crash the likes of which the world had never seen wiped $40 billion off the value of shares in five days. Like many of his ilk, much of Walter's wealth, largely inherited from a manufacturing dynasty stretching back centuries, was eviscerated. For those that held a person's bank balance as the true sigil of their being, the psychical fallout was catastrophic. If Jack had been innocent at all about the cosseted paradise he had grown up in, a different world had revealed itself for the first time. As one after another, men marched themselves to the Grand Colorado Bridge and leapt into oblivion, often leaving their wives behind to pick up the pieces. Though Walter did nothing quite so drastic, his health, along with his family's fortunes, never recovered, and in 1931 they took him with them. The loss for Jack, who had treated Walter like a father, was devastating, but a valuable lesson in those things in the cosmos over which you have no control had been learnt. Unnerved by the sudden change in the family's finances, Jack sought out employment, landing a job at Hercules Powder, a chemical and munitions company based out of Los Angeles. It was here that Parsons learnt about the history of explosives, how to mix for both high and low end, and which chemical combinations produced which kind of burn. Jack worked all the hours he could find in between college, and each weekend he and Ed would put his newfound knowledge to the test. Out was balsa wood, and in was toughened metal casings fashioned by Ed. But something was lacking. Though their rockets were improving, their progress was slowing down. When Jack graduates from college in 1933, he emerges significantly changed from that intense, lonely child that Ed had picked up from the dirt all those years ago. When he sees his friend now, 18 years old, standing over six feet tall, the magnetic intensity is still there, but no longer is it turned inward, but radiating out. Perhaps Jack was starting to notice it too, the way others seemed no longer to be inching away from him as he walked past, but drawing a step closer. That winter, Jack and Ed attend a Christmas dance together, 
held at the Pasadena First Baptist Church. Ed can see the way the young women are looking at his friend, but Jack only has eyes for one of them. She is tall, with brown hair, and, unlike the others, appears to want nothing to do with him. At 22, Helen Northrup was four years older than Jack when they began dating, tentatively at first. Like Jack, she too had lost her father at an early age, but unlike him, her mother Olga wasn't quite so free to bring up her children alone. Not long after her father had died, Helen's mother Olga had met and married Burton Northrup, a travelling salesman. It isn't known when he started turning his attentions to the nine-year-old Helen, but she suffered his abuse throughout her childhood and teenage years. Olga and Burton would later have two daughters of their own, and he abused them too. Burton had forbidden Helen from meeting with boys, but was oddly enthusiastic about Jack, and, perhaps hoping to take advantage of his no longer existent wealth, encouraged her to stick with him. Helen was only too pleased to escape the monster. Once, Helen told Jack a peculiar story. One night when she was 12, back when her family were living in Chicago, she had been unable to sleep. Hearing voices coming from the kitchen, she crept to the bottom of the stairs and peered into the room to find her mother and some friends sat at the table in front of a strange board and in the middle of it an upturned glass. Her mother and friends placed their fingers on the glass and asked where Olga should move the family. Helen watched enrapt as the glass had moved around the board, spelling out the word Pasadena. To Parsons, it was a clear sign. Something was guiding them to each other for a purpose. In 1934, Jack, his grandmother Carrie, and his mother Ruth were forced to finally sell up the old mansion in return for more modest dwellings closer toward the centre of Pasadena. Although Jack had always struggled with the discipline of academic rigour, suffering from what we would now call dyslexia, he knew any chance he had of realising his dream to build a rocket to the moon would require formal qualification He duly enrolled in Pasadena Junior College to study chemistry and would later be accepted into Stanford, but was forced ultimately to turn them down, unable to afford the fees. Shortly after meeting Helen, Jack takes a promotion at Hercules Powder and is moved to their main plant eight hours north of Pasadena. By day, Jack toils 16 hours at a time, immersed in the dangerous alchemy of explosives manufacture. Surrounded by billowing acrid clouds of fuming nitric acid and furnace flames that redden the sky, it seems to Parsons as if he had descended into a strangely alluring rendition of hell. By night, he attempts to communicate telepathically with Helen, reaching out to touch her hand from a seemingly impossible distance. One time, he believes he managed it. Helen had felt it too. Back in the desert, Jack and Ed were coming to the realisation that if they were to take their inventions to the next level, they would need a more formal structure, and maybe some help. In March 1935, a 20-year-old Parsons and 22-year-old Ed 
came across an article in the LA Times regarding a presentation given by grad student William Bolle on the future of rocket science that had taken place at Caltech a few days previously. It was the first time they had ever read mention of rocketry outside their science fiction magazines, and it had occurred only a few miles from their homes. Within an hour, the pair were striding through the entrance hall of Caltech, startling William Bolle in his study. Confused not only who the overexcited pair were, but how on earth they had made it as far as his study, Bolle was just about to dismiss them when they began to speak. Taken aback by their beguilingly extensive knowledge and enthusiasm, he pointed them towards fellow student Frank Molina further down the hall. Molina, who had also attended Bolle's talk and come away deeply inspired, recognised his passion in Parsons and Foreman. That afternoon, as the men exchanged their ideas and theories, something was beginning to dawn on Jack. Something that had occurred to him during those early conversations with the young scientist, Von Braun. In the early 20th century, a number of mind-bending ideas, from Einstein's theories of relativity to the revelations of hidden quantum worlds, had completely upended all previous understandings of outer and inner space. Concepts of reality were shifting. Rumours had begun circulating too that space was expanding. Such discoveries had filled the pages of Jack and Ed's magazines and with it their imaginations, but in the real world, rocketry and space exploration was a joke. The concept of space travel treated as an impossible dream for naive schoolchildren. That afternoon, talking to Frank Molina, perhaps the brightest student that Caltech had to offer, Jack realised why he and Ed had kept coming up against dead ends in their efforts to improve their technology. They were the vanguard. Those weren't dead ends. They were the hard cliff face at the edge of human knowledge. And Molina knew it too. Molina's tutor was the famed mathematician Theodore von Kármán, after being introduced to his students' two compatriots, recognising their brilliance and somewhat enamoured of their independent, rebellious spirit, he immediately granted his permission to use the Institute's state-of-the-art facilities. The young team named themselves the Galsit Rocket Research Group, the acronym standing for the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. The following month, Jack and Helen were married and moved into a modest home together in Terrace Drive. Around that time, Jack struck up a friendship with a used car dealer called Robert Rapinski whilst looking for a car one afternoon. Having grown up suspicious of other people, Parsons the adult, emboldened by his recent acceptance into the academic fold of Caltech, was finding himself to be far more open and receptive to others who in turn, he noticed, appeared to greatly enjoy his company. Back at Caltech, in order to sell their venture to his supervisors, Molina had to frame their experiments within the context of a workable goal. Parsons' initial suggestion, to literally shoot for the moon, was dropped for the more sober endeavour of constructing a rocket capable of delivering meteorological equipment 25 miles high into the ionosphere. Though Parsons would have to learn to adopt a more measured and studious approach to his work, 
The team was soon back out on the Arroyo Seco, just as Ed and Jack had been as young boys, doing what they loved best, playing with fire. With Molina's mathematical skills, Foreman's growing ability as an engineer and Jack's mastery of chemistry, the team's knowledge was increasing at an exponential rate, and by October 1936 they were ready to test their first engine. They had also caught the attention of two other Caltech students, Apollo Smith and Rudolf Scott, who would assist them with their first test run. Early in the morning of Halloween 1936, the three students and the two amateur enthusiasts made their way towards a large patch of dry riverbed at the bottom of the Arroyo Seco. The team pieced together their apparatus in preparation and took a moment to pose for a photo, marking the occasion before turning their attention back to the engine. After Jack lit the fuse, the young men dived behind sandbags and waited nervously for full ignition, but as gas and liquid rushed into the supply tubes, the pressure blew out the engine's fuse. After resetting the equipment, they tried again only for the engine to get completely flooded when the fuse blew out again. When they tried a third time, the fuse was blasted into the sky igniting the equipment on its way back down. One of the tubes carrying oxygen broke free and spewed flames into the air. The men made a hasty retreat, returning minutes later once the fire had died down. The team made three more tests over the next three months, perfecting their motor at each step, until in January 1937, the engine roars into life, alive with a blast that burns for 45 seconds. As their technology improved, the team, having cemented their position at the forefront of US rocket development, soon began attracting the national press. In early 1938, a 23-year-old Jack is called by the county prosecutor to act as an expert witness on a criminal case involving a car bombing and attempted murder of a private detective who had been investigating corruption in the LAPD. The culprit turned out to be head of police intelligence, LAPD Captain Earl Kinnett. It was thanks to Parsons' expert knowledge regarding the manufacture of the bomb that Kinnett and two accomplices were found guilty of their crimes. But back at Galsit, things have not been progressing so well. Despite formal recognition from Caltech and increasing interest from the national press, the rocket team, who had so far survived largely on a surprise $1,000 donation, were running out of money. Despite efforts from von Karman to raise the interest of the American military, the establishment remained sceptical of the nascent technology's military applications. Jack watches with dismay as one by one the team are forced to abandon the project for full-time employment elsewhere. At home, Jack and Helen's relationship which had become increasingly strained as Jack poured every last penny of their finances into his obsession, was now struggling under Jack's increasing despondency over his future. Eventually, he too is forced to go back to working long and crippling hours amidst the fire and fumes of the Hercules powder factory. But something else was changing too. Throughout the 30s, Jack and Ed had kept tabs on the development of the VPF group in Germany, but around 1936, they vanished. The Gausset team were well aware of events in Germany and had watched with alarm 
as Adolf Hitler's fascist, National Socialist German Workers' Party had seized power. It was common knowledge that the government there were arming heavily. Von Braun and his compatriots had been drafted in to help. All across the globe, with tectonic changes in science seeming to occur on a daily basis, new ideas were spreading into the social sphere too. The Wall Street crash, which had ushered in a period of unparalleled poverty and depression in America, prompted many to question its economic system. Talk of communism was a regular topic at one of the many evening gatherings the rocket team would share. So too did they watch with increasing concern as the leading government of the apparent free world grew increasingly paranoid of its own subjects' freedoms, clamping down on radical ideas and social transgressions with a religious seal. For the anti-authoritarian Parsons, after the initial burst of excitement at establishing the Galsit team and the hyper-sugar rush of cutting-edge innovation, by the summer of 1938, he looked up to find himself in a world on the brink of war and a nation dominated by paranoia and an increasingly reactionary social conscience. It felt to him as if the world was caught in a battle of cosmic proportions. Some time later, Parsons calls in on his friend Robert Rapinski. While browsing through his bookshelf, he is struck by one book in particular that seems not to have a name on the spine. Feeling compelled to pull it from the shelf, he turns it over to reveal a strange and beguiling front cover. A hypnotic monochrome pattern printed in gold, which after studying it for a moment, Parsons realises is the title of the book. The font elaborately stretched out to resemble a maze. It spells conks on packs, Greek for essays in light. Rapinski had all but forgotten he had bought it and is only too happy to let his friend take it home. Inside, the author promises an introduction to a litany of sacred texts and magical practices. Jack had never heard of the author before. His name was Alistair Crowley. When Jack leaves his friend's home that afternoon, carrying those magical words under his arm, his life and the world will never be the same again. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to show your appreciation, you can now help support us by going to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support all donations no matter how large or small are massively appreciated all elements of unexplained are produced by me richard mclean smith please subscribe and rate the show on itunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share you can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at Unexplained Pod.
Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.